118. Psalm 118. Originally, I had planned on us launching into our next uh, series, studying the book of 1 Corinthians today. And about a week ago, um, this just one verse in this text just got a hold of me, and uh, I couldn't let it go. And I don't like to break in series if we can help it, so I just thought I would delay the beginning of the series. Um, I do want to underline just a couple of things. Uh, ladies, if you want to be part of Women in the Word, uh, that begins this Thursday. There are a couple of times available, one in the morning, one in the evening. Uh, if you don't want to do join up with that online, uh, one of our ladies will be at a table in the foyer after the service. Um, and again, I want to underline the importance uh, of, a me, of, a, of a combined Sunday school that's coming up on January 22nd. If you're a member of this church, unless you are providentially hindered, you need to be at this time and at the members meeting the next week because we're going to be talking about things that affect our budget but also affect the next few years of our lives together as a church. And so I trust and hope that you will prioritize being here. You may not be accustomed to getting up and being here for Sunday school. Well, time to break that bad habit and just come on, uh, all right, and uh, be here. And if you're not a member that particular time, that combined Sunday school, you're welcome to be here. That's not a members-only time, though the, the meeting the next week will be when we have to make decisions about budget. But I would love for you to hear what it is that uh, we believe the Lord is calling us to as a congregation, and so uh, to be here and to hear about that. Um, Psalm 118, I'm going to actually read the entirety of the psalm. Um, it struck me also last week, when this psalm struck me, what a, uh, what a privilege it is to stand before anyone, anyone, at any time, and open this precious book and to preach it. And I am thankful for that privilege. I'm thankful for all of the years that I've had that privilege. And I'm thankful for the 13 years that I've had it in, in this pulpit. No doubt my fingerprints are pressed into the wood on both sides of, of this uh, pulpit. And so we come again to a privilege, isn't it? To have ears to hear what the Lord says. Psalm 118, this is what the Spirit says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, these are your words that you have given by your Holy Spirit, and you tell us that these things are recorded for our encouragement, that these things are able to make us wise unto salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray today that you will speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Music is uh, powerful stuff, isn't it? It can move you. It sticks with you. Music is a great way to communicate a message, to celebrate a special occasion, to mark an important event, even to honor someone. A song can uh, uh, stir the memory of an old friend. A song can stir the memory of one who has departed and gone on to be with the Lord. We just came through a whole season marked by music, didn't we? So hymns that we love to sing about the birth of our Savior, uh, fun songs about Christmas and snow, old Lang Syne to ring in the new year. But throughout the year, special songs will be chosen to celebrate love at a wedding, to remember a loved one at a funeral, to get a crowd excited at a sports game. We have patriotic songs. We have birthday songs. Songs were written to mark the events of 9-11. A song can make you angry. A song can get you excited. A song can move you to tears. Music is powerful, but it wasn't our idea, you see. Music is God's idea. 
He created it, not only to add beauty to this world, but to help us remember Him, to help us exalt Him, to help us celebrate Him, to be stirred by Him. And what we have in the book of Psalms is essentially a hymn book, a book of songs, songs that exalt God, songs that record His works, songs that communicate His truth, songs that connect the experiences of this life with the reality of who He is. So as we come to Psalm 118, we don't just come to a poem, though it is poetic. We come to a song. Last week, we visited my brother-in-law's church in Mississippi, and we sang uh, the song that we often sing, How Great Is Our God. You know, you remember that? In the chorus, How Great Is Our God, sing with me, How Great Is Our God. And that sing with me is essentially what Psalm 118 is inviting us to do as it tells its story. So, Psalm, so verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the sing with me portion. O Israelites, O Israel say, His love, His steadfast love endures forever. O priests, house of Aaron, verse 3, say His steadfast love endures forever. O you God-fearers, you, even you proselytes, you Gentile converts, say with us, His steadfast love endures forever. Everyone who knows this God, say it with me, His steadfast love endures forever. This is what we're invited to sing. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And actually, these words are part and parcel with Israelite worship. They appear almost identically in four other psalms. In 1 Chronicles 16, David sings these words when he brings the ark to Jerusalem and puts it in the tent. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, the Israelites sing it as the ark is put into the temple. And then they sing it again once Solomon prays to dedicate the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat prays for the Lord to intervene and to help defeat enemies. And as Israel waits for God to intervene, do you know what they sit around singing? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. When the Israelites are in exile, in Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah speaks to these uh, these exiled people, and God promises that He will restore them. He will bring them back to Jerusalem. And do you know what they'll do when they get there? They'll sing. And do you know what they'll sing? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then in Ezra chapter 3, the exiles are back in the land, and they complete the foundation of the temple, and they sing, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. These words, these lyrics are woven into the life and the history and the soul of Israel. And in Psalm 118, what we have is one taking this common call to worship, as it were, and giving his own understanding as to why we ought to be singing it. 
we see His testimony to the Lord's goodness and love, and then we see the crowd join in with Him as we go through. So let's see what happens first by way of personal testimony. After these first four verses, which invite us to sing, there's a change in verse 5. Suddenly it gets personal. Suddenly everything's in the first person singular. Just let your eyes wander down the page. I'm not going to read, but starting in verse 5, just look at it. I, me, my, I, me, my, my, me. And it goes on and it goes on. All of these personal words all the way through verse 21. Now, the text doesn't tell us who this I, me, my is. Plenty of things have been bandied about about as to who it is. It doesn't tell us. Uh, I tend to think that this is a king, maybe not David, but a king still, because he, he goes out in battle. He's talking about going out in battle, and, and kings would do that. It doesn't mean somebody else is saying it, but that's just my conclusion. But whoever it is, he gives his testimony of his experience with God, how God proved himself to be good, how God showed his steadfast love. And so I want, just want to show you four things that he says in his personal testimony. He says, He answered my cry for help. That's what he says in verse 5. Now, the word distress there doesn't mean that he was just agitated. He was annoyed. Traffic was bad on the way to work. It doesn't mean that he was just a little bit concerned about things in the world. This distress basically means that he feels like life has him in a stranglehold. The grip is tight. And it's only getting tighter. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Psalm 116 where it says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. That word pangs is the same Hebrew word as distress in, in, chapter, in Psalm 118. This is serious stuff. This is, this is not a splinter under the fingernail. This is where you can't even feel like you can breathe. You're not sure you're going to be able to go on. That's the distress. But notice that his point isn't simply to talk about distress. That's what we often do, isn't it? You call up your friend, and uh, or you go to coffee, or you go to lunch, and the whole theme of the conversation is distress, how this is distressing about life, how that is distressing about life. And if one was a fly on the wall and listened to that conversation, they might think that the, that the biggest reality in your life is distress, that that's the thing, that sometimes it may sound like it's the only thing going on in your life is distress. But not this guy. This man only mentions his distress so he can tell you about his God. You see that? Verse 5, out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Yes, the grip of distress is strong, isn't it? But God is stronger. And he's saying that the strong hand of the Lord pried the hand of distress off my neck and off my heart. He goes on to say, 
He is on my side. That's the second part of his testimony. He is on my side. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. One of the great and comforting truths in the Bible for those who know God, those who are in relationship with God, is that He is with us, that He is on our side, that He is for us, that He will never leave us or forsake us. And this man knows it. He has walked through with distress, clinging to his neck, but he's known the whole time, the Lord is on my side. You see, the, Lord, the evidence of the Lord being on your side is not that distress never gets around your neck. It's not that death never enters your experience, really. It's not that you're free of suffering. It's that He strengthens you through all of that. It's that all of these things are going to work together for the good of those who love Him and for the glory of the one who saved them. And he says, he is on my side. It's interesting, in the, in the Bible, you find the Lord constantly promising this. Promises it to Isaac. Promises it to Moses. Promises it to Joshua. Promises it to Gideon. Promises it to Jehoshaphat. When you read the story of Joseph in Genesis, the only, you find out the only way he escaped temptation and actually rose to favor in Egypt was this. God was with him. When Moses prepares the Israelites to enter the promised land, he tells them in Deuteronomy 31, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. How can he say that? Because he's just walked through all of that. And the Lord never once left him. The Lord never once forsook him. And the Lord had brought him to save these people. And then you get to the pages of the New Testament and the promises keep on coming. The risen Christ promises, I will be with you even to the end of the age. But what is that knowledge supposed to do for us? Well, look in verse 6. It snuffs out this man's fear. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And it gives him boldness. I shall, verse 7, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Friends, knowing that God is with you in the Lord Jesus Christ should affect how fearful you are. You don't actually have reason to fear anything that can actually hurt you in the long run. Plenty of things hurt, but none of it will last. Isn't that good? What can man do to me? Just kill me. What else? Because once I'm dead, there's nothing, right? Nothing that guy can do to me. Nothing that gal can do to me. Nothing, there's nothing. But there is something still happening then because I belong to the Lord. None of that's ever going to touch again. That's good news. I just want you to think for a moment. What is the most fearful piece of news that you could receive today? 
What is that thing that you could get the call and hear those words and it would strike a kind of paralysis in your heart? Knowing that God is with you equips you to hear those words in a way you would not hear them otherwise. What can man do to you? Really? He is on my side. And knowing that the Lord is on our side makes all the difference. In Psalm 124, it says, If the Lord had not, if it was not the Lord, if had not the Lord been on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. But as it is, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's good news. It doesn't mean that we're stoics. It doesn't mean that we don't feel pain. It means that the voice of pain and the voice of things that would threaten our life, our existence, our comfort, our health, our happiness, our our family, our finances, our anything, those things drown out in the voice of God coming through the Scripture saying, I will be with you. I have to go to those words often. Don't you? If not, go to them often. Because if you know who God is and you know what God has done for you and then you say, that's the God who is with me, that changes you as you walk through the tribulations, the trials, the struggles of life. He is on my side. And then he says, he gave me victory, verses 10 to 16. We have a picture of battle, and four times he says that he was surrounded. Verse 10, all nations surrounded me. Verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. Uh, A fire among thorns burns very, very hot and very, very fast. It doesn't last But it burns hot and fast immediately. It's like taking your dried up Christmas tree and throwing it into uh, a fire pit as it's lit. (sighs) Or like doing one of my favorite things, which is to take um, uh, uh, lighter fluid and squirt it onto the the fire pit and watch it just go. (sighs) It burns very hot, very fast, but short. But each time he's surrounded, he says he acts and he cuts off the enemy. But the the key to the victory isn't the brilliance of his strategy. The key to his victory isn't the strength of his sword. The key to his victory isn't the size of his army. It's the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. He said, in the name of the Lord I cut them off. Do you remember uh, David and Goliath? David looks at Goliath and says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. And who won? David. He cut him off and then cut his head off. 
And so this king has had a similar experience of the Lord's help. He says in verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Defeat looked certain, but the Lord brought victory. So he alone gets the glory. Look at verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now these words would strike a familiar chord in the Jews' ears. It would call to mind another circumstance where defeat looked certain, but the Lord intervened. You remember? You remember Israel escapes Egypt and they leave and then Pharaoh sends his army after them? And then they come to the Red Sea, and they are surrounded with the sea on one side and the army on the other. But God splits the sea so that they walk through on dry ground, and then the Egyptian army is drowned in the sea. And then do you know what they do after that? They sing. You look at verses 14 to 16. Look at those verses in your Bible, and I'm going to read from Exodus 15, okay? The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Then a few verses later, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You see why that would ring with familiarity? This is what God does. This is what God does. He brings victory. And the fact is, is that when it comes to our sin, it wasn't just that we felt like defeat was certain. Defeat was certain. We were surrounded. But God became our strength and our song, and our salvation. And his right hand swooped down and rescued us and did valiantly through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? The fourth part of his testimony is that he saved me from death. Death is the great enemy, isn't it? Death, when when death shows up, he strikes fear into people's hearts. He consumes people's thoughts. And death's reach is extensive. No one can escape him. No one can avoid him. All must face him. If you don't think that death is the great enemy, then why is it on Monday night the entire National Football League and folks beyond that were sitting in stunned silence while DeMar Hamlin was laying on that football field? Why is it that you could have heard a pin drop in that stadium? Why is it that tears flowed? Why is it that fear gripped so many? Why is it that people who may never pray suddenly in that moment know we need to pray? Because death's shadow was very near. And in the end, we thank God 
for reviving this young man. But in the end, medicine won't keep him from death. The right diet won't keep you from death. Exercise won't keep you from death. There's only one who's more powerful than death. And that's the Lord. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And dear friend, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will go through death, but you will not be given over to death. Because Jesus says, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And in the end, What's so, what, what would be the best outcome is not people from different religions coming together and saying they're praying for this young man. What would be great, what would be best is if every person who hears the story of that young man being so close to death would face the reality that they won't just get that close to death. They will die. They will face God himself. That's what would be best. Don't get caught up in the warm fuzzies of everybody saying nice things. Because I tell you that even after the worst of events, after 9-11, the same kinds of things were said. And has the world gotten better since then? And has God been receiving glory from more and more and more and more people? Did the world just rush to the gates of heaven and say, oh God, save us? No, no. Death plays no favorites. You and I know not when he will come knocking at our door. But if we belong to the Lord, we will not be given over to death. So the Lord answers his cry for help. The Lord is on his side. The Lord gives him victory. The Lord saves him from death. No wonder in the middle of this, in verses 8 and 9, he says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Don't look to any human being for protection, for salvation, for security, for shelter, because even the greatest of human beings are of no real help. Looking even to princes, even to the most powerful people in the world will be of no use. It'll be like trying to cross the ocean in a boat made of wire mesh. You will sink immediately and surely. Take refuge in the Lord. Why? Because He is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. That's his testimony. And he comes into the city, bursting with it. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And as his testimony rings out, as he gives thanks to the Lord because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. It seems to spur on more people to say things. 
It spurs on public worship. That's the second heading, public worship. Now, before I actually dive into this next section, I just, want, I just want to ask you, how is it that you speak about the distress of your life when it comes to unbelieving people, when it comes to the people around you? How do you speak about distress? How do you speak about difficulties? How do you speak about hard times? Because if all we ever do is want to pat one another on the back and, and make sure people know we can identify with them because we have problems too, that does us no good. Sitting around and putting all our energy into focusing on the problems of life and how we all have the same problems, and oh yeah, I've been there, and oh yeah, I've been there. That does not help one iota. That does not bring your unbelieving friend face to face with the reality of the fact that there is a God who is bigger than all of it, a God who has sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. Does the Lord ever enter your conversation when you do talk about, yes, the common distresses of life? Do you speak of the Lord? Do you give Him credit? Do you give Him credit for the peace that you have, the comfort you have, the hope that you have? Do you point to Him as the one who no matter how bad it actually gets because of Jesus, I have hope because this world is not all there is? Do you do that? If you were to look back, if you, if you told the story of 2022 sometime in the last week, what was the story that you told? How much did the Lord appear in it? Because for some of you, it was one of the hardest years of your life. But did you try... But, but did you point to the Lord? Do you see that year in light of who He is and what He says and what He's done for you? Friend, that's what faith does. That's what faith does. So He comes in with His, his testimony and interrupts in public worship. Okay, so everything, the scene changes. In fact, the grammar changes. When something's going along in one bit of grammar and then suddenly it shifts to something else, you got to ask, is there a reason why this is happening? And this thing has gone public because we go from the first person singular to the first person plural. Listen to it, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the, Lord, the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So the testimony of this king seems to have encouraged the faith of the people so that in verse 25, they're praying with him. In verse 26, they're celebrating with him the fact that the name of the Lord has brought victory. In verse 27, they join him in worship, bringing sacrifices. And all of this flows out of these three verses, 22 to 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I mean, this week, if you set out to put up a new wall in your house, so you go to Lowe's, and you look at the lumber, and after you pass out and are revived by, because of the prices of the lumber, then you start to look at it. And you look at these two-by-fours, and you don't want warped two-by-fours, right? 
You're going to leave those for somebody else. You don't want the cracked two-by-fours. You're going to leave those for somebody else. Same idea. If you're building, you're a builder, and you're looking at this rock, and you know what it takes for a rock to really be used, you just look at it, and you say, "Uh, no, not this one. It's all wrong, tossed aside. Well, that's the same idea here. The stone that the builder have rejected. That's been the experience of this king. He was in distress. He's surrounded by enemies. Death and defeat seemed certain. It seemed he was the rejected stone. But God steps in as his strength and salvation and help. And even though everything looks like rejection, God has established him and he's lasting and permanent. He's like a cornerstone. This is what God does all throughout the Bible, isn't it? He takes the weak and the foolish and the low and the despised and the people who are nothing, and He demonstrates His power through them, doesn't He? Over and over again. Some of those same people. Moses. Gideon. David. Jehoshaphat. I mean, anytime the guy that's leading you into battle looks up to the skies and said, uh, we don't know what to do, that's not good news. And yet through this weak king who couldn't come up with a battle plan, God demonstrates his power. This is what God does. This is what's marvelous. This is the day that the Lord has made. The day when the world, the, the day when the one that the world rejects suddenly becomes the one that the world must recognize, the cornerstone. And friend, if you haven't connected the dots already, I want to tell you that when the New Testament writers, when they would, when they would go to synagogue and sing this song, they didn't just hear poetry. They heard prophecy. They hear in these lyrics something greater, someone greater. So that Paul in Ephesians 2 will tell that church that it has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, Peter will stand before religious leaders and he will preach to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. But how is it that they hear this poetry as prophecy? Well, at least in part, they hear it this way because Jesus himself heard it that way. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 827 where I'll read. But turn to Matthew 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 33. This is Jesus is going to tell us a parable. <clears throat> Jesus says this. Matthew 21 beginning in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit grew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When there, then Jesus poses this question. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. At the beginning of that chapter, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for his last week of earthly ministry. And not long later, he's going to gather with his disciples for Passover and celebrate that one last time. And once they're finished, do you remember what happens when they leave that upper room? They sang a hymn. And do you know which hymns were associated most closely with the Passover? Psalms 113 to 118. And many believe that that psalm is the one that they sang as they left. Those words ringing in their minds as they go to the garden before Jesus is betrayed. You see, the religious leaders were to be the builders. They were the ones entrusted with God's vineyard as tenants to teach God's word, to advance God's kingdom, to build God's people. But like the tenants in this parable, they took one look at Jesus, the son, and they think, no way, not this guy. Let's kill him. And that is what they do. They conspire with the Roman government, and they have the son killed, the stone is rejected. And three days later, when Jesus rises from the dead, these words in Psalm 118 burst with new light, new meaning, new power, new hope, new life, because the Lord takes the rejected stone, Jesus, and makes of him the cornerstone, the one you cannot ignore. So give thanks to the Lord, for on that day, He showed His goodness to us. On that day, He showed us the goodness of His mercy and His forgiveness and demonstrated His steadfast love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, you see, Jesus' death wasn't the Pharisees doing. It wasn't the chief priests doing. It wasn't the crowds who demanded His crucifixion. It wasn't Pilate's doing. It wasn't the Roman soldiers doing. Oh, yes, they all had a hand in it. But friends, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes because of what it does for us. 
You see, there are only two ways that you can look at Jesus. You can look at Jesus like the builders did. You can look at him as disposable. You can look at him as ignorable. You can look at him as one who ought to be tossed aside because he is a barrier to what you think your greatest happiness is. You can look at Jesus that way and you can reject him. But the only other way to look at Jesus is through eyes of faith, to see him, his death, his resurrection as marvelous and run to him and cry out like the crowds did in Psalm 118, save us, O Lord, we pray, save me. This is the day that the Lord has made, the day of Jesus' death the day of Jesus' resurrection. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And friend, when you, when, when you see that day that way, every other day gets put into perspective. The day of distress, when it feels like life has you in a stranglehold, the day when you feel surrounded by enemies, even the day that death comes knocking at your door. On the very worst of days, you can rejoice and be glad because nothing will change what God has done on that day. This is the day of hope. This is the day of God's steadfast love in Jesus. This is the day that God has been so good to us. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And on that stone we stand before God. We stand forgiven. We stand righteous. We stand right with Him. We stand justified. We stand in His glory. And when you try to stand anywhere else, it's quicksand. Where are you standing, friend? Where are you standing? There's only one place to stand, and that is on Christ, the cornerstone, the solid rock. Let's pray together. Our Father, how thankful we are for this day, this day when you saved us, this day when you claimed us as your own, this day when our sin was paid for, this day when our shame was covered, this day when our guilt was erased, this day when eternal life sprang forth, this day of Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you for this day. And help us to see this particular day in 2023 in light of that day. Help us to live this day in light of that day. Help us to serve this day in light of that day. 
Help us to love and to sacrifice and to give and to pursue holiness this day in light of that day. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. We pray in his matchless name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn before we leave this morning.